Where in the world do four pupils out of ten drop out of school before their final year? The answer is Chicago, in the city's largely black public schools. Primary and secondary education is in a state where it is considered not very effective. Ten years ago, Warren Bacon helped run the city's 600 public schools. Now he leads a businessman's lobby to reform them. We do, in fact, have a number of uh, schools that do very well, but far too many of them do not do as well as they should. The young people who come out can't uh, read at grade level, they can't uh, compute, they, they can't write, communicate very well. And we're saying that that is not acceptable any longer. Uh, is there any particular ethnic group in which this is particularly concentrated? Yes, it's concentrated among uh, uh, blacks and Hispanics. Uh, but you must remember in Chicago, there are very few white students left in the school. Uh, the student population in Chicago is about 420,000 in the public schools, of which uh, 80 to 85 percent are minority, black or Hispanic. Only 15 to 20 percent are white. And uh, many of them have gone to pr private schools, parochial schools, or have moved to the suburbs. And this is the legacy of the discrimination that existed in the past. Now, your organization is committed to generating racial harmony, building racial harmony in the city. What proposals have you put forward to the state governor to reform education, to give a better break to the minority population? Well, it's to improve the school system generally, which will in turn uh, affect uh, minority students. What we have proposed is a vast reorganization and restructuring of the school system in which the, uh, most of the authority and responsibility for running the system is thrust down to the local school level where the principal and the teachers and the parents at that school make the major policy decisions affecting that school. How in practice would that work? Would school results, for example, be taken into consideration when reappointing principals? Yes, the principals would be given a performance contract that has certain goals developed by the teachers and the principal and the parents of the school so that they can work on them together. And this month, Bacon saw his dream begin to come true when school councils were finally elected in Chicago. The councils promised to cure a bloated bureaucracy with a dose of local democracy. Up to now, in a city with the population of Ireland, the Central Board of Education hired all teachers. But from now on, local school principals will decide who teaches in their schools and jobs will be awarded on merit, not on seniority, the tradition established by teachers' unions. It's restructuring, perestroika, reform. But the man responsible for it is dead. His name was Harold Washington. Six years ago, he became Chicago's first black mayor to the delight of one-third of Chicagoans who are black. But in 1987, he was struck down by a heart attack. Washington had a rare personal interest in public schools, as his chief education reformer, Kenneth Smith, explains. When Harold Washington became mayor of the city because of his own um, experience as a, as a product of the public schools, education, the public school system became uh, one of the cornerstones 
uh, for his administration. And he, he really wanted to see if we could not make some significant changes and improve uh, this system. Washington was the only mayor to have actually attended Chicago's public schools in a hundred years. The rest had gone to private, mostly Catholic schools. He knew his schools were getting poorer. Two out of three pupils were living in poverty and teachers were escaping the classroom to become administrators. Two years ago, Chicago's teachers went on strike for 19 days and won a 4% pay rise. Settling the dispute, Mayor Washington asked Kenneth Smith to chair an ambitious education summit to reform his schools. He himself organized the Parrot Community Council and this large group had to nominate people uh, to serve on this council of 50 or 60 parents. And then from that body, uh, 10 of them were selected to sit at the summit's table. And the summit lasted six months. Its main conclusion was to set up a school council in each school, consisting of the principal, six elected parents, two residents elected from the local community, and two teachers elected by their peers. One secondary school student would also be elected as a non-voting member of the council. Crucially, it also proposed these dozen council members should vote, by a simple majority every three years, on renewing their principal's contract. With this month's election of Chicago's new school councils, it remains to be seen if they can fulfil Kenneth Smith's dream. As well as spearheading school reform, Kenneth Smith is also president of the Chicago Seminary where the Reverend Jesse Jackson trained as a Baptist minister. Today, Jackson is the undisputed leader of America's 25 million blacks, demanding they get a better deal. It means taking handguns off of our streets. It means more education for our children. It means a commitment to provide hope for families that have been disrupted by prolonged and protracted poverty. This, this administration has not been sensitive to it, friendly to it, black people. Jackson leads a rainbow coalition of blacks and other minorities. Last year, it failed to win its leader, the Democratic Party's nomination for the White House. But Jackson won an impressive 7 million votes in primary contests. And so as we travel, we seek to expand the, the rainbow coalition, to get even more people involved, and to use our strength to create more registration, more participation, and a greater turnout. Thank you very much. Jackson campaigning for Michael Dukakis last winter. He sketched in bleakest terms the condition of the increasing number of blacks he's been persuading to vote. There are about 13 million registered black voters, and blacks have suffered under the Reagan administration. He has, in many ways, abandoned the interests of black America. Thus, eight years later, one-third of all black Americans are now in poverty. One-half of all black children are in poverty. Fewer blacks in college and more blacks in jail. He's not met with the Congressional Black Caucus one time in eight years. He virtually took away the, the character of the Civil Rights uh, Commission. Uh, he never offered a sympathetic ear in our efforts uh, to impose sanctions on South Africa to get that country to change. He suggested mean-spirited things, like the jury is out as to whether or not Dr. King is, is a communist. And so it's been a, a period of, of, of closed-door policy from the White House or toward black America, and the commitments made have not been kept. Not only have blacks suffered in terms of less support from the public economy, 
also less support from the private economy as well. Talked about enterprise zones. Well, uh, he stood in Bronx and he, st he stood in the zone, but the zone remains, but, but no enterprise in the zone. Uh, so that we've had seven years of, of, uh, of either abandonment uh, or, or seven years of, of disregard. And of course, black Americans who, who are bona fide citizens of this country, who are taxpaying citizens of this country, who are servants in America's military, deserve equal protection under the law and equal regard from the president, as all other citizens in this country uh, deserve and are due. Reverend Jackson, some polls have um, blamed your own candidacy and role for splitting the party along race and class lines. How do you react to those, um, th that, that, those comments? My role has been to expand the party and to unify it. In fact, the new voters, I was able to organize and inspire to register and to vote, is the reason why we were able to regain the U.S. Senate for Democrats. On the other hand, in these last uh, eight years, there are now three to five million homeless people. Malnutrition is on the rise again. More people working but 40% more working poor. More working women in poverty. And so we've continued to work on standing for equal rights for women, civil liberties and civil rights for all, raising minimum wage for working people, revived commitment to affordable housing and to a national health care plan. Those happen to be common ground issues and invariably each category affects white, blacks and browns alike. More whites than black. The poor are not mostly black and brown. The poor are mostly white and female and young. But these common ground issues of raising minimum wage for working people, equal rights for women, social justice for all, has a healing effect upon the nation. But Jackson split the Democrats in many states over his drive to register more voters under the party banner. Party bosses seemed to fear new voters would support Jackson's rainbow coalition candidates in local elections. I didn't know that the approach that was used was one of basically getting resources to state organizations which would then be responsible for voter registration. While that is a sound theoretical construct. As a practical matter, it is not very effective. Number one, most state organizations are not equipped for voter registration because that's not what they do. They basically coordinate the state activities of the party. Or secondly, for the most part, they are the guardians of the status quo. And in fact, it is the newly registered voters and those historically locked out represent the expansion that we need. For example, uh, it, as we expand the voter registration rolls, those who are now in office either have to expand with it, accept the challenge in some kind of contest. And so I am, all, I am convinced that the voter registration efforts must be targeted and targeted those people who need a basic economic change. People tend to be Democrats because they need to be, and Republicans because they can afford to be. The question becomes who needs to be a Democrat? Those students who cannot afford tuition. Who needs to be a Democrat? Those teachers who cannot get adequately paid. Who needs to be a Democrat? Those 600,000 family farmers driven from their land. Who needs to be a Democrat? Those workers who have been abandoned by plants, 
who when they strike are shut out, and the Labor Relations Board is a mediation board no more, it's now strike-breaking board. That is, in fact, the hardcore Democratic Party base, and that is our, that's the basis for our victory. But can the Democrats capture the White House? Republicans brand them dangerous liberals. The issue is not uh, boundless liberalism or static conservatism. The issue of, of labeling people and questioning their patriotism is not the real point. Uh, is the fact that, that, that Nixon and Agnew left the White House in shame as conservatives, is that the prototype conservative? I think not. And so the idea of trying to cast somebody as left is, is a health care plan for every American liberal or morally right. Is affordable housing for everybody liberal or morally right? Is people who work getting paid an adequate wage, is that, is that liberal or is that, is that morally right? And registering new voters in a black university in Atlanta, Jackson pinned his hopes on the young. These students can be trusted now to follow through and vote. They can now be trusted to volunteer in the process. They can be trusted to go out and work and organize other people to vote and to maintain the tradition, a revived tradition, one might say, of, of student activism. Uh, I trust them. And so my challenge to students is to look at what's at stake. What's at stake is who's going to appoint Supreme Court justices, who's going to appoint judges, who's going to fight more for affordable education, but Professor Glenn Lurie of Harvard University says Jackson's own efforts to improve education in Chicago from 1976 onward were not particularly successful. I would uh, note that Reverend Jackson uh, in the 1970s made himself uh, quite a name by saying to people that um, they had to uh, be responsible for themselves, by saying, going to high schools and saying to young people they had to stop using drugs, it did no good for the door of opportunity to be open if they were not able to walk through it, and that sort of thing. His Push XL program that he developed at that time is in some ways a model of the kind of thrust that I think is desirable. Uh, but, but I would also have to note that Reverend Jackson has substantially abandoned that particular thrust. Now, there are, there are various ways of interpreting that. You could say that he has seen a higher calling that his is a national leadership, not just a leadership directed at the inner city poor, that he can only do so many things at one time, and he chooses now to pursue the, you know, social democratic, um, uh, a, a left political agenda in American political life for all Americans, not just for black Americans, and so he has, he has done what he has done. Um, less kindly, one might notice that uh, his organization was never very effective, that it was very poorly managed, that it has, uh, since his 1984 presidential campaign, been embroiled in one or another legal controversy with the government about funds not appropriately accounted for and the rest, and that uh, he was all talk and no action. That would be a, a far less kind construal. But the bottom line is he's not in that business anymore. Now, in the mid-1960s, when the government was um, very optimistic about the possibilities of redressing through um, social policy, uh, the um, serious poverty and uh, racial inequality that, uh, uh, that existed at that time. Not only were these civil rights laws passed, but a broad array of other social programs were, were put into uh, place. Um, 
whose uh, intention was to uh, bring about um, a uh, equality as a matter of fact uh, and not just as an ideal uh, for black Americans and whose effect I think it is now again fair-minded people can uh, agree uh, it is now clear was substantially less uh, than were the ideals or goals for those policies at that time and that that fact um, is uh, at base um, a, a fundamental source of the of the sense of uh, frustration and anger and alienation that many black Americans feel and that is uh, uh, that is quite evident in our politics um, in the uh, presidential campaign of Reverend Jesse Jackson um, and in the behavior of black Americans politically around that campaign you see voice being given in our politics to that alienation and to that anger and that disaffection voice being given not only by uh, poor and impoverished inner-city residents but also by middle-class professional and relatively uh, well-heeled blacks whose alienation and sense of anger and, and, and marginality is a very important legacy of the failure of the Great Society programs to uh, affect the incorporation of blacks uh, wholly um, into the American mainstream. The rate of crime is spiraling in black communities and Professor Lurie accuses the black middle class of being soft on black crime. I'm talking about the uh, well-educated and power-connected class of black elites who, and there are exceptions of course, but who as a class, in my judgment, have failed to um, realistically confront what's going on in inner cities and have rather sought to construe those problems as the inevitable consequence of eight years of Reaganism. Uh, what else can you expect when social welfare budgets are cut? Um, and that sort of thing. Who would say, if I say, uh, let us not allow young men who commit violent crimes to go in and out of the criminal justice system without being punished, let us ensure that they are punished and punished effectively, not only from the point of view of, uh, of, of dealing with them as they deserve, in some sense, to be dealt with, but also from the point of view of uh, communicating to the communities which they victimize the fact that we value public safety in those places. Um, since the persons who pay the price for the liberal treatment of criminal offenders are not the intellectuals who assert that uh, it's society's fault, they are rather the working class and poor residents of the communities where uh, people who violate the laws practice their craft. If I say that, the response from a great majority of this class of intellectuals and politicians and the rest would be, but you are blaming the victim. They will say, how can you say that? These young men commit these crimes because they have no other alternative. And I say that that argument is itself an abdication. It is a failure to confront reality. Um, it is, again, to my judgment, the legacy of the 1960s revolt in which much of this leadership class was shaped, which construes these problems as being the direct cause of an oppressive external environment. I'm saying they may have in some ways been initiated by an oppressive external environment, but they now take on a life of their own. And no matter how we change the external environment, unless we're prepared to confront the internal character of these problems in these communities, uh, we will not be able to address them. 
A man who goes to the centre of those communities is America's most widely read black publisher, John Johnson. He's campaigned for 15 years against black crime. But can he sell his magazines to young and poor readers who get sucked into crime? Only those who want to improve themselves. No, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't sell to those people who are content with what they're doing. No. You know, I, I remember seeing uh, an ad, um, a, a cartoon in the New Yorker. There was a drunk sitting at the bar, and he said, as he leaned over, completely inebriated, he said, you know, my wife loves me, my girlfriend loves me, my children love me, I have no problem, I just like the stuff. Now, for those people who just like the stuff, I can't do anything with them. John Johnson is a staunch supporter of Jesse Jackson's. He likes his campaigns against black apathy. One of the things that I like about Jesse Jackson is that he has encouraged more black people than ever to vote. Now, we, we've got to admit that people who are killing other people, people who are committing crimes, people who own drugs, are not likely to be inspired to vote, whether you're talking about black, brown, white, or yellow. I support Jesse Jackson. Because what Jesse is, Jesse is preaching hope. Jesse is preaching faith. You see, I come from the welfare rolls of Chicago. You see, I'm not unacquainted with poverty. <laughs> My whole family was on welfare for three long years, and I thought myself out of poverty. And I say, if I can get out of poverty, other people can get out of poverty. So yes, I, I support Jesse, because what, what you're having, and most people are unable to see that, you know, if, if you're down, way down, Somebody has to convince you that you can get up. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to do in this magazine. And I think we've done it, really. I've done it for myself, and I've done it for many other people. People come by here from all over the world, and they want to see what we've done. I didn't have to build uh, an ornate building like this. You don't have to have this to have a publishing company. But I wanted to make a statement about black people, to say that we can have you know, square foot for square foot, as good a building as anybody else has in the world. My corporate culture here is that we must always succeed against the odds. We say there's always a problem and there's always a solution. Very often we don't know what it is, but we have to search until we find it. Um, we think, I think, commitment to succeed is more important than money because you can have money and lose it. But if you have the commitment, you can lose the money and get some more. You see, I started with nothing now, absolutely nothing. I borrowed $500 on my mother's furniture and bought direct mail literature and postage and mailed letters out to people asking them to subscribe in advance for a magazine they had never seen. And today, that magazine, called Ebony, sells over one million copies an issue, making John Johnson a millionaire. What's the most important change he's seen in the black population in the past five years? The single most thing is that black people are now proud to be black. See, when I started, we were Negroes. And nobody wanted to face up to the fact that we were black people, that we came, that we came from Africa, and Africans are black. And now we are black, we are proud of it. Um, I think that's the most important thing. The most important thing that any race or any ethnic or religious group has to do is to free themselves. Once, you know, I free myself, 
then I can fight to be freed from other people. But first, I have to believe in myself. I have to respect for myself. And if I have that, then I can fight to have other people give it to me. So I think that's the most important thing. And his magazine's greatest contribution to blacks? I said the biggest contribution I think we've made is to, to have blacks believe in themselves and to show them that success is possible. For example, um, Colin Powell, who is the national security advisor to the president, we have a big story in one of our issues on him. Now, that's got to encourage other black people to know that we can move higher. We, we deal with cabinet members. We deal with judges and lawyers. For example, Mississippi now has a black congressman. It has a black Supreme Court justice. You know, I'm from Arkansas. And this black Supreme Court justice says that when he began the practice of law, he could not enter the courthouse without showing a copy of his diploma and a copy of his license to practice. Now, we've reached a point where that same man now sits on the Supreme Court. But very few blacks have made it to the boardrooms of America's biggest companies. John Johnson explains why. Look, number one, we've got to admit that some of it is discrimination. I don't, I don't think we can sit here and say it's not. That's like saying, why aren't women? You know, there are more blacks on boards than, than there are white women on boards, which means that it's discrimination. It's discrimination against women. It's discrimination against blacks. It's discrimination against Hispanics. It's discrimination against Orientals, except they're buying up the states right now. <laughs> so so um, uh, the discrimination is there. So what you have to do is find a way to get around it. And my experience is that the best way to get around it in America is to help, to, is to show the people that putting you in a certain position is going to make more money for them. You know, the, the corporate people are concerned with the bottom line. If you can contribute to the bottom line, they will forget about some of their prejudices and some of their inconveniences. And so, you know, that's the way I've done it. I serve on many corporate boards and, you know, I don't have any problem. Uh, and I think you know, the first one they put me on, I did a good job on, and then word gets around. And I think that's what, what you have to rely on. It's a slow process now, but, but it's the only way to do it. Reaching this point in the process has not been easy. Glenn Lurie, the black Harvard professor, traces the long uphill struggle of America's blacks. You're all familiar, undoubtedly, uh, with the broad outlines of this history, uh, the fact of slavery and emancipation, uh, the, the fact of an uh, ongoing um, uh, second-class citizenship and denial of the extension of equal protection of the laws to black Americans for many decades after uh, the formal emancipation of the slaves, and the fact of, in the post-World War II era, um, a ultimately broadly-based political movement that sought to redress uh, that uh, denial of equal citizenship, the civil rights movement. Um, we have in our courts uh, elaborated uh, an extensive uh, set of legal um, rectifications and protections aimed at acknowledging and addressing uh, this inequality of opportunity and of legal status for blacks to the point now where I think most uh, fair observers would agree that um, um, we have uh, established a single citizenship. I speak from a de jure point of view, from the point of view of recognition in the law of the 
uh, equality of rights of all Americans, irrespective of their ethnic origin. Um, prominent in that process was the um, Supreme Court's decision in 1954 in the Brown uh, versus uh, Topeka Board of Education case to um, uh, strike down uh, the separate but equal doctrine which had permitted segregation of the races in public uh, facilities to persist uh, as a legal doctrine. But also very prominent um, in that development has been the, um, uh, the, the wide reinterpretation and extension of the protections of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, uh, the Equal Protection Clause of that 14th Amendment, which states roughly, I won't remember it exactly, that the Congress shall make no laws that deny to uh, persons in the United States the equal protection of those laws. Um, the reinterpretation and extension of that clause uh, has been the foundation for a fairly uh, sweeping <coughs> judicial activism uh, that has uh, sought to uh, bring about uh, substantive equality uh, between the groups. Uh, so the courts have been involved. Uh, the legislature has also been involved, most prominently in the 1960s during the Lyndon Johnson pre presidency with the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965. Um, um, revolutionary pieces of legislation, really, uh, that in the first instance outlawed uh, discrimination in employment and in public accommodations, uh, and in the second instance uh, sought to secure um, effective means of enforcing the equal right to participate in the political process to register and vote for blacks, especially in the southern jurisdictions where those rights had effectively been denied um, for nearly a century after the emancipation. Um, so you're all aware, and I'm saying here in a little bit more detail, of the broad character of that movement toward legal equality for black Americans. That movement has been accompanied by substantial progress for some black Americans in economic and social status. Um, I hope that in your visits to large American cities, you will not have failed to uh, take note of the substantial middle-class black residential areas that can be found in these cities, as you undoubtedly will have taken note of the uh, uh, poverty areas and the decaying central city areas that are extremely problematic uh, and are the focus of so much press and popular attention. Uh, there are uh, substantial areas of black middle class um, uh, uh, achievement in the society that can be seen, the physical evidence of which can be seen in these cities, and that can also be seen in the statistics. But the proportion of black families entering the middle class by earning $35,000 or more a year has only managed to creep up slowly from 18% in 1970 to 22% in 1986, a gain of just four percentage points in 16 years. In 1984, black men with college degrees were earning less than three quarters the income of white male graduates. These are some of the conclusions of the United States National Research Council in its most recent study of race relations. It's been called the most definitive study of its kind in 20 years. It showed that five years ago, black workers, on average, were earning only 57% of what whites were taking home.
That's the same proportion as in 1971, when blacks were also getting half the white wage with a little extra thrown in. Jesse Jackson. Prices have gone up 30% since Congress last raised the minimum wage. A full-time job at the minimum wage won't keep a family of two a single mother and a child out of poverty. That's six $900 a year, 40 hours of work. Basically, the Reagan-Bush approach is maximum profit and minimum wages. The result is, while more people are working, more people are in poverty, which means they're working without getting adequate wages. Jesse Jackson looks at the working class and sees stagnation. Professor Lurie sees middle-class progress. Economists and sociologists who study, study these trends have written extensively about this and have accredited, have credited that uh, uh, progress uh, in part to legal liberalization, as I'm saying, but also in part to the consequences of improvement in the quality of education and of general uh, growth in the um, um, uh, uh, economy uh, general progress and the, um, the, the level of economic well-being for all Americans, which has had the effect of improving the status of uh, blacks. Large-scale migration of blacks out of southern agriculture, for example, from the uh, early 1930s on through the uh, early 1960s, where blacks went from being substantially concentrated in southern agriculture to being a largely urban and roughly 50% northern population that kind of development. Uh, dramatic increases in the average years of schooling attained by uh, young blacks going from roughly eight years of schooling at uh, the 1940 census to essentially a high school, uh, 12 years of schooling uh, by the 1980 census. This kind of broad secular change in the um, um, economic and educational experience of black Americans uh, has to be seen alongside the legal shift as uh, as uh, factors uh, motivating, driving uh, uh, the progress that can be seen. Um, in 1960, roughly one in three black women who were employed worked in domestic service of one sort or another, as late as 1960. By 1980, black women and white women were um, very close to being uh, identically distributed in their employment uh, activities among various professional uh, and uh, um, and other uh, strata. So in that in that roughly in that quarter century period, a dramatic shift in the ability of black women uh, in the workforce to uh, uh, pursue career patterns comparable to those of whites. It's 25 years since President Lyndon Johnson put blacks on an equal footing with whites in the eyes of the law, but the National Research Council shows that overall, since the early 70s the economic position of blacks has stagnated or got worse compared with the position of whites. The 60s reforms also aimed at integrating blacks and whites, but today racial segregation is still a strong feature of American life. John Johnson. It's strong, but it, isn't, it, is, it, 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 it can be dealt with. You see, the law, I think the big thing we have uh, in the States now is that the law is on our side. We can pursue it in the courts. And I think um, it is not fashionable to be a bigot. Uh, it is not respectable to be a bigot. 
you have some wild, crazy groups that are against everybody, like the Ku Klux Klan, they're against blacks, they're against Jews, they're against Catholics, they're against everybody. But I think that blacks have been, with the vote, blacks have been empowered to solve some of their own problems. And Chicago is perhaps the best example of a place where blacks have begun to solve their own problems in a segregated city. I think Chicago uh, has been a good city for blacks. And it started out because at one time we were considered the most segregated city in America. But segregation had its good points. We all lived together, and so when we all got to vote, we voted together. And so we had strength and we had power. So it, it, we have more black businesses in Chicago than we have anywhere else because we were forced to do business with each other at first. And then we learned that we could do business with each other. Okay, we, we also gained political power. And the greatest symbol of Chicago's black power is Jesse Jackson. Although born in the South, Jackson, the professional politician, is a product of Chicago, rearing his family in one of the city's black middle-class neighborhoods. John Johnson casts his mind back over two decades to the day he hired Jesse Jackson to sell copies of his Ebony magazine. Now, Jesse Jackson came to Chicago many years ago when he was a young student uh, and went to the church where my mother um, was a member. And my mother called me one day and said, you know, there's this young man from, from the South who is married and has two children, and he needs a job. And I said, mother... How old was he I don't know how old Jesse was then. I guess this was when he came. It was 20 years ago. I guess he was in his 20s. I, I, my, my guess, he was maybe 25. If I had to guess, I don't know. Um, I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> I would have looked it up. <laughs> All I'm saying is, when he came, he was a young man. He only had two children. Now he has five. I'll be right up in front, man. Uh, and so what, 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 what happened is that I said I didn't have a job, and she said, as strong mothers are, and my mother was strong, she said, I'm your mother, and I want that boy to have a job. So I said, if you want him to have a job, mother, he's got a job. So I said, but the only thing I have is loading and unloading trucks. She called him back and called me back, and she said, he'll take it. So when he came in this Monday morning, uh, tall, handsome, articulate, the first thing I said to myself is, I cannot give him a job loading and unloading trucks. And I quickly decided, such a man would be good in sales. And I gave him a job in the sales department. And while he was in this job, he, Martin Luther King came to town and he met Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King liked him and the rest is history. There's also an international flavor to Jackson's rise to power. Just as the Irish in America have tried to influence Irish nationalism at home, so too the blacks are spearheading the cause of South Africa's disenfranchised majority. Jesse Jackson. I visited Southern Africa the year before last and took a, made a visit to, to Angola, <coughs> Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Zambia, <coughs> Tanzania, Botswana. I've subsequently been in touch with uh, leaders from throughout the area with the front line heads of state, with leaders of, from SWAPO and from ANC, met with the South African ambassador and officials 
on several occasions. We assert that in our foreign policy doctrine, that several principles must be consistent. One, support for and respect for international law. Second, accept determination. Thirdly, human rights. Fourthly, economic development. And fifth, these principles be applied consistently across the world. And Jackson believes a Democrat in the White House would be more diligent in doing this than any Republican. He explains the Democrats provide the natural political home for American blacks. He points to distinctions between his party and Republicans in their attitudes to Southern Africa. There are some distinctions. The Democratic Party asserted that South Africa is by definition a terrorist state and therefore that we ought to apply our own rules to how we relate to terrorist states. It involves not trading with terrorist states. It involves not selling arms to them directly or indirectly. It means mobilizing our, our allies to discourage their trading with or selling arms to the terrorist states. And therefore, we ought to use the approach of, of sanctions. We ought to do more than that. We ought to, in fact, meet with the heads of state of the frontline states, a summit meeting. We ought to impose <coughs> clear, unequivocal sanctions. We ought to increase support for SADC, the Southern African Development Coordinating Council. We ought to supply defensive weapons to frontline states to enable them to defend themselves from South Africa's constant uh, military invasions and destabilizing acts, which number about 50 invasions uh, in the last uh, seven years. And so the Democratic Party is open to a comprehensive view, an African policy that is in great measure determined in dialogue with African leaders. The present approach, of course, is a rather blind ideological one, looking for a communist under every brick, which becomes really diversion from ending apartheid. But late last year, in the dying days of the Reagan administration, Jesse Jackson was detecting a change in George Bush's policy towards South Africa. Mr. Bush even referred to South Africa as a racist state. So it's higher on the agenda than it has ever been before. It must remain high on the agenda. But back on the home front, George Bush faces mounting discontent about discrimination against his own blacks. The recent National Research Council report speaks of continuing resistance to full equality for black Americans. The council blames a considerable amount of inequality on discrimination against blacks, especially in housing. Chicago is arguably the most segregated city in America. A warning of things to come if nothing's done to defuse its racial time bomb can be heard in this rhyme recited by two 12-year-olds one Saturday morning last year on the south side of the city.